Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about smelling salts. We are excited to welcome today's guest. Dr. Emily C. Friedman is Associate Professor of English at Auburn University, where she directs 18thConnect.org and the Manuscript Fiction Project. Her current work connects new media phenomena with their 18th century echoes. She is at work on two books, Before Fan Fiction, Alternative Circulation in the Age of Print, and Actual Players, Networks of Digital Performance. She is also the author of the book Reading Smell in the 18th Century Novel, which makes her the perfect guest for today's episode. Welcome, Emily. So glad to be here. (laughs) For today's episode, we are returning to the Dashwood sisters in Sense and Sensibility. The scene we're pulling from is when Marianne and Eleanor are in London. Willoughby has snubbed Marianne and announced his engagement to another. And now Eleanor is facing down an evening with Fanny Dashwood, Mrs. Ferris, and Lucy Steele, among others. Just a real party here. (laughs) Fun times. And it's not going well. Mrs. Ferris and Fanny are purposely being cruel to Eleanor since they suspect she's in a relationship with Edward. And after a while, Marion has had enough. So this first part is from Marianne. Dear, dear Eleanor, don't mind them. Don't let them make you unhappy. She could say no more. Her spirits were quite overcome, and hiding her face on Eleanor's shoulder, she burst into tears. Everybody's attention was called, and almost everybody was concerned. Colonel Brandon rose up and went to them without knowing what he did. Mrs. Jennings, with a very intelligent, ah, poor dear, immediately gave her her salts. And Sir John felt so desperately enraged against the author of this nervous distress that he instantly changed his seat to one close to Lucy Steele and gave her, in a whisper, a brief account of the whole shocking affair. Sometimes you just have to gossip, I guess, to get it out of your system. (laughs) I'm feeling really emotional. The gossip just comes out. So, Emily, we are so excited to have you here to talk to us about smelling salts and how they're showing up in this scene. Austin, you know, identifies this object for us here in Sense and Sensibility as smelling salts, but there are other moments in the novel when Austin refers to things like lavender water, like when Marianne is snubbed by Willoughby at the London Ball. And in your book, you point out that there is actually a wide range of scented materials held in smelling bottles that were used to revive individuals. Can you tell us a bit more about the different types of contents in smelling bottles of this era? And what is Marianne actually smelling? Yeah, it's really interesting that we have these like personal handheld objects. And in some cases, you might actually have a dual ended one where you'd have a kind of pungent reviver, often ammonia salts, in one of two ways. You can smell this if you really want to, and I I don't recommend it. (laughs) One is ammonia bicarbonate is sold as baker's ammonia. It's an alternative form of leavening. You have to be very careful when you bake with it because, one, it off-gasses, and two, if you don't bake it sufficiently, it makes your cookies smell like ammonia. The other way it's still used is as a revivifying agent. This really does have a physiological effect on your nervous system. And so it used to be used by emergency technical folks. But now, because the reaction the body makes is involuntary, 
if you are concerned that there's head or neck trauma, you're not going to mess with that. So it it really is a, a genuine stimulant, which is why it is sold as nose torque or under other names as a aid for professional athletes. And I can confirm as a competitive power lifter that power lifters use it right before doing a big mm. lift as a you know kind of vasodilator to kind of get the blood pumping and moving through the body. So that's like the active ingredient of a smelling bottle in this period. But you also might have pleasant aromas either in a similar kind of container or at the opposite end. So when I used to give talks in the before times, (laughs) I would have test tubes and one of them would be ammonia. And I would say, okay, we're going to open this test tube for about a hot second. And then you're going to stop it again. And please do not snort it. This will go very badly for you. (laughs) There's a footnote in my book, credit to my dear, dear friend, the brilliant Dr. Jenny Batchelor of the University of Kent, who did indeed accidentally inhale too much of this stuff at a talk I gave at Shotton and could not smell for four hours. She was rendered anosmic. Oh, it's that strong. Yeah, it's that strong. It didn't take much. And then right next to her, so the thing I do, because you want to clear the air of ammonia, is you say, okay, so now open this bottle that has lavender water in it, which is smells exactly what, what you imagine, natural lavender. And then Dr. Elaine McGurr, who's a specialist in actresses, who was right next to her, immediately turned pale. And I was like, oh no, did she get ammonia too? Found out later, she washed her hands with lavender soap all through her pregnancy after she had morning sickness. And so she has associated those two smells in her head as lavender equals I'm going to throw up. Oh no. So one of my illustrious senior colleagues like couldn't smell anymore. And the other one (laughs) was like, I want to heave. Like this is this is my life now. (laughs) So most people in the Regency period would not have had that relationship to lavender water or rose water or jasmine water or any of the other kind of floral distillations that were available for sale also were made in the home. So we have a lot of information from, you know, kind of housekeeping recipe books, both of professional and kind of collected by families in how to make these compounds. You weren't making ammonia at home, but you were making these other kinds of reviving floral infusions or what have you. And you might use those as a kind of reviver, as a pleasant scent. You might use it after ammonia, or you might just use it because, as you might imagine, in, say, a ballroom, uh, you are very close to a lot of people who are dancing very strenuously in a fair number of layers. And the same is true, you know, in the Regency as it is like if you went to the club. Now, sweaty bodies don't smell especially great after a while. And so you might just have it up to your nose to have an alternative to the smellscape around you. I don't want to say that the Regency period was stinkier than our own period, but certainly there are moments as in our own lives and our own cultures where, you know, there's certain smells we're trying to avoid. And so a smelling bottle is really handy for that as well. So you were saying that in terms of the floral distillations, that was oftentimes something that they would be making themselves? Yeah. I mean, if you are in a home that has enough land and you have enough free time, 
you know, it's a question with the Dashwoods. Their cottage is no cottage, right? They, they right. Ha- still have a fair amount of space. And certainly they have the free time. They may or may not have the equipment at home to do the kind of distilling work that this kind of production would entail. So it's entirely possible that they could also just have purchased it from any number of kind of shops that sold hair powders no longer in fashion, but hair powder would have been sold at the same kinds of shops as would different washes for the face, different kinds of treatments for, you know, acne and brightening the face and all of those sorts of cosmetic applications as well. Same shop for all of your needs. So your work also focuses a bit on the physicality of the smelling bottles themselves, the actual object. And it seems like in scenes like the one at the top of the episode, these smelling bottles are just readily available at a moment's notice. Everyone has them at the ready. Are they like an accessory? What would these have looked like? And what's kind of their level of portability and omnipresence? They're definitely widely available. And they're definitely pocket-sized. And of course, pockets are bigger in that period because we hadn't gotten rid of pockets for women at that point. But men and women would have carried different kinds of scented objects that fit in the palm of your hand. So we can think about a lot of these smelling bottles as being basically the size of a ballpoint pen or smaller. It doesn't take a whole lot of, say, ammonia salts to perk somebody up. So there's kind of tubular versions, and then there are versions that have like The aromatic substance is actually soaked in a sponge, so you can have a wide variety of kind of shapes. They're sentimental objects, they're gift objects. I know you guys have talked about miniatures before. It's a similar kind of ubiquitous object that can be given on a lot of different kinds of occasions and things like that. In the same way for men and women, snuff boxes are kind of prevalent in roughly the same period. Snuff is waning in terms of popularity for women at this point, although Queen Charlotte was known as Snuffy Charlotte because she was, that was how she was altering her smellscape was through her own special blend. So small boxes and bottles being part of kind of your everyday accoutrement would have been pretty common in the kind of circles that Austin and her heroines are moving in. That's why you see so many of them. And I'm assuming there's that the wealthy you are, They're going to be more ornate, made with costlier materials, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the ones that survive are made of silver or pewter, but we also see, you know, kind of shaw green, that kind of stingray sort of effect and other kinds of luxury item kind of materials. But yeah, they can be very utilitarian as well. They are at a certain point a non-essential object. We are not in the early modern period of, you know, a hundred years prior where, the understanding of the world was, we're in a plague and we need to be carrying large kind of scented objects as medical devices. We can almost think about this as kind of the descendant of those pomanders from the earlier periods, but no longer kind of understood as essential kind of life-saving devices in the same way. But there's something still in the culture around the idea of good and bad air, and that will continue to be a kind of idea that will take us through well into the 19th century. And in fact, coming back as we think about filtration and the qualities of our air today. So yeah, I mean, changing the atmosphere around you is something that the kind of middling sorts and up are trying to do in different kinds of ways in this moment. 
because there's been this kind of shift for the for their uses a little bit, are we seeing a distinction? I mean, you you mentioned that both men and women are carrying these objects. Are we seeing any kind of like divergence in terms of gendered usage around this time that Austin is writing? To the extent that we have traces, a lot of the traces are from fiction. So of course, they're kind of idealized representations of what we think human beings should behave like in this particular class. And so you see kind of more or less two kinds of uses of smelling bottles in particular. And snuff kind of attaches to one of these. And the first is where we, what we see Mrs. Jennings doing. What she is doing is she is providing what she understands to be first aid, right? You are having an intense emotional reaction. I am coming to revive your spirits with this bottle. And so there's a fair amount of depiction in the period of people coming to the rescue, men and women, with smelling bottles. And so it's a way of signaling, oh, this is a very serious and authentic distress, right? And Austin is coming into the conversation after decades of the sentimental novel tradition that's thinking about, you know, the embodied feeling, right? And the way that we can make that legible and visible to others and whether we should and when we shouldn't, of course, Sense and Sensibility is all about, you know, when do you reveal and when do you conceal? And Marianne is always very visible in her feelings. <laughs> we don't see Eleanor being given these salts. And so that's the kind of first reason is like it's a charitable object. And the other we see when we have characters who are using it on themselves. And usually that's kind of a way of telegraphing to your audience that this person is removing themselves from sociability with whatever they're engaged with. And a lot of the time that's a critique, right? But sometimes it's necessary. So we, we can think about the stinkiest moment in all of Austin, which is the moment that Fanny Price goes home right. in Mansfield Park as an adult. She doesn't belong there anymore. It's not a familiar smellscape. It's what she grew up with, but she's grown beyond it or can't handle it anymore. It's a complicated situation. But it is definitely, at least seen through her nose, repulsive. You know, nothing has been washed in a while. Everything is murky. And so we can kind of sympathize, although Fanny doesn't remove herself, we can sympathize with the implication that if Fanny did have a smelling bottle handy, she probably would use it to kind of get herself out of the situation, at least in terms of her nose. So those are the kind of two ways that you're most likely to see a smelling bottle in this period is either as you're giving it to someone else and being super helpful and isn't it great that you're prepared for emergencies or you're overly dependent on it and you're being unsociable, you're being un you're making yourself unfeeling about the people around you. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on the more performative aspects of using smelling salts or bottles. The great example we have is in Mansell Park as well, is Lady Bertram at Mariah's wedding, standing with salts in her hand, expecting to be agitated. <laughs> so is this sort of like a way of displaying your kind of feminine delicacy? Well, it's interesting, right? Because like Lady Bertram is an inert blob, <laughs> for lack of a better term, right? She is a woman of inaction. The world is happening to her and even not that much happening to her. It's passing her by. She's in a bubble. And, you know, I'm not not mad at it. She's got her puppies. She's got... <laughs> Fanny doing all of her work. She is my ultimate example in my book for the person who has noped herself out 
of all society. And you can see it from the fact that she's the Austin character who uses a smelling bottle the most. And she's using it, as we see in that moment that you just quoted, expecting to be agitated before she even needs it. Who knows if she's even going to need it? Because, you know, how much feeling is she feeling? Mm. I mean, somebody like a Mrs. Norris, she never needs to be revived. She's, she's a hearty stock. She doesn't need to be. Well, she might have one for that kind of performance of being useful. Mm, right. She would be the person who shoves it up your nose and you don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the imposition of this. Like, if Lady Bertram's smelling bottle is coming out too early so that she can, like, KO herself, Mrs. Norris's is coming out <laughs> so that she can olfactorily assault some, some poor sucker. Olfactorily assault. That is Aunt Norris. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, because she's helpfulness weaponized, right? In a lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, she's always saying, like, oh, I've got to know. She's micromanaging everything, making sure that if. Bad things happen to Sir Thomas. She's ready, like you said, weaponizing yeah. it. Yeah. So, so bringing it back to sense and sensibility, we see the application of the smelling bottle a few times in the novel. I think one of the first references is actually with Lady Middleton's child. But most of the time, it seems like in reference to Marianne. What do you think Austen is kind of signaling here about Marianne's characterization? Yeah, I mean, I think we've we've already talked about the ways in which Marianne is the woman of feeling, right? She has not enough skin. She is all sensibility. She is all emotion. She's feeling big feels like she's, you know, my six-year-old nephew. <laughs> Actually, I think that is an insult to my nephew. I think my nephew has a little bit more emotional regulation than, <laughs> than Marianne does. So we're seeing her as someone who needs the assistance of this crutch, right? And so I think that's one of the reasons why she is, I mean, she's the heroine of all of the heroines who we see most kind of being given a smelling bottle in this kind of way. It's another way that Austin is using in her arsenal of all of the senses and all of the things we see of her youth and her emotional fragility and the fact that she just needs a lot of help. She needs a steadying influence, right, according to the logic of the novel, which is debatable in other kinds of ways, but certainly the logic seems to be this is, she's not, she's neither helpful, she's the one being helped, but she's also not oblivious. In fact, we can see people trying to apply the smelling bottle to her as a way of regulating her emotions, bringing her kind of, if a Lady Bertram needs to be brought back into society by pulling the smelling bottle away from her, we can see kind of Marianne is operating on the other end of the rheostat. Like she's gone off the charts in the other way and needs to be brought back to an emotional center by having the smelling bottle kind of mute her in some, in some kind of way. I mean, it's, it's notable that like one of the other examples in the book is is a literal child, right? Uh, and she's not being, you know, she's not having lavender water shoved up her nose. She's having it, her wound bathed with it. But she's the other like, I'm feeling a lot of feelings. I'm crying a whole lot. And of course, she's caught just like Marianne is. So this is like a little bit of a microcosm in this kind of emotional feedback loop where her mother's anxiety, her family's anxiety is only making the child, you know, Anna Maria's 
freak out, spiral more, you know, and in the same way, we can kind of see the way that the Dashwoods, Eleanor can only regulate so much in that household with all of the other kind of intense personalities that are kind of spiraling in those kinds of ways. Yeah, her mom certainly feeding it. Enabling it, yeah. Yeah, and of course, Eleanor is one of the people who's trying to, you know, revive Marianne with lavender water, right? She's one of the people who's trying to kind of do that regulation work. Well, and it is interesting in the scene specifically that we used at the top of the episode, where Marianne is obviously distressed because of the whole Willoughby thing. Obviously, that's that's kind of the initial point for her. But the fact that she is actually trying to step in to regulate for Eleanor, right? It's Eleanor who's actually experiencing distress in this moment. And so Marianne is supposed to be like, don't let them make you happy, unhappy. And and yet she is causing way more drama. I mean, if we're like doing the modern adaptation, right, style of with Marianne, Marianne is the like empath. I'm using quotation marks with my hands on a podcast because of course <laughs> that's what we do. But the, the, peop- the person who's just like, I feel other people's feelings, yes. man. Eleanor is having the legitimate distress, right. but I would argue that Marianne is definitely feeling real feelings, just her origin is kind of, you know, secondhand. She's an amplifier yes. rather than a muter. Yeah, that's a good way of describing that. She's the worst kind of hype woman. <laughs> she hypes your anxiety. Right. Your emotional distress. Let me just demonstrate Indeed. that for you. You know, I think we all have at least one friend in our lives who we know that when we're in distress, they're not the person we're going to talk to because they will like be like, oh, yeah, that's bad. And have you thought about how this could be worse? <laughs> I'm not picturing like a card for Marianne with her game stats, you know, just plus five for all these different emotional <laughs> things. That is her superpower. <laughs> I am trying to remember like the good society stat block and for, for the Jane Austen role playing game. And it is escaping me at the moment. But <laughs> I will retrieve it at some point. So I just had one more question about smelling salts in particular. When did they start to fall out of fashion? Like how how long were people using these? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely specialist now, although it's really interesting because of the powerlifting thing. I follow a lot of kind of women's powerlifting websites for selling gear and things like that. By which I mean like belts, not what powerlifters often mean by gear, which is like illegal doping substances. Right. right. <laughs> Sorry, I have, to cl- I have to clarify these things. But one of the things that many of these places sell is customizable scents of these uh, ammonia salts, right? So it's not just the smell of ammonia, but it's the smell of coffee ammonia. I'm sometimes tempted to like buy it as, you know, smell scholar just to see what it's like. And then I am reasonably certain it's that's disgusting. <laughs> uh, so I have not placed that, you know, $12 or whatever bet. But yeah, so we've got a highly specialized use kind of in the 20th and 21st century. They continue to be present, at least in terms of representations and fiction and things like that, through the 19th and into the early 20th century for sure. And that's also, you know, in part because... We don't have a whole lot of other kinds of remedies in that way. And also the kind of chatelaine, the jewelry piece that was either, you know, around the neck or the waist that had all the little bits and bobs, that was a potential, you know, charm on your chatelaine. And so until those completely go out of fashion, you've got those kind of prevalences as well. They should have busted out some really teeny tiny ones when charm bracelets were in there. Heyday. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, no. 
Well, and it would also be interesting to see kind of how the smelling bottle, and this is a, this is a speculation, uh, not a thing I know a whole lot about because I'm an 18th centuryist and then I'm a 21st centuryist. Like there is no what happened in the space between, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. The rise of modern perfumery happens in the in the early 20th century. So you could probably argue that at the moment that the smelling bottle is truly kind of leaving fashion aside from kind of emergency medical uses, you've got the rise of modern perfumes, which would you wouldn't want to have a bottle of scent. You are creating your own sillage around you instead. And so the modern concentrations of eau de parfum are much stronger than a lot of the materials that were being used prior to that. And so in the 1880s and thereafter, 1880s is Jiki, which is kind of considered one of the kind of big milestones in the history of perfume. So it's possible that that technological change and that kind of sartorial change, and of course, that's also, you know, those are starting to be the decades when women lose their pockets. And so there's also that in the mix as well. When we are seeing that kind of the decorative perfume bottle also kind of replacing, like just physically, there's a there's kind of a trade-off that happens there at that point too. Yeah. And it's being relegated to the dressing table because you're not carrying it around with you, especially those terrible squeeze bottles. Those atomizers are garbage, y'all. Don't ever leave perfume in them. You will say goodbye to your very expensive perfume very quickly because all it is is a way for it to evaporate. Uh Uh (laughs) Hot tip. There you go. This has been fun perfume rules. That's right. Your hot perfume (laughs) tips right here. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, one of the things that I do every once in a while on Twitter is uh, have people. Rachel Simey has, she'll uh, match you with a perfume. I do that for people's like role-playing characters or for imaginary characters or, you know, work characters from fiction, matching them with modern perfumes because that's fun. That sounds fabulous. I love that. Is that something that people can hit you up on Twitter for? Absolutely. Perfect. I think that's a great time then (laughs) for you to tell our listeners where they can find you online and tell us a little bit about your book that will be coming out in paperback later this year. Yeah, so I'll start with that. I'm the author of Reading Smell in 18th Century Fiction, which came out with Bucknell University Press. Uh, It's distributed by Rutgers University Press. And fingers crossed, it will be coming out in paperback in the 2023 season. And you can find out when it arrives, you know, when it lands and when you can pre-order it by I am on Twitter all the time because I'm a highly online individual. And so you can find me at Freed, which is F-R-I-E-D-E. You can also check out my website for copies of basically all of my work. That's ecfriedman.com. And I think it's fairly well known, but just in case, it's all it never never hurts to say academics want to be read. So if you can't get a hold of our stuff, we'll send you a copy. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You can find me on Instagram at Manuscript Fiction, which is where I post about the work relating to my unpublished women writers and other people writing like Jane Austen in manuscript from between 1750 and 1900. I swear I am learning about the 19th century these days. (laughs) And I talk about playing Jane Austen and other 18th century representations 
in modern board, video, and role-playing games with Dr. Emily Kugler from Howard University. And our YouTube channel can be found at Critical Prof. Excellent. So many good things to go check out now. I'm a nerd of many talents. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Super fun. Super fun. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you again to Dr. Emily C. Friedman for joining us for today's discussion. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And stay tuned for next episode when we'll be talking about Irish melodies. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.